When I was in the sixth grade, uh, my basketball coach and my sixth grade teacher named Jerry Simmons pulled me out of class one day. I wasn't in trouble. I know what you're thinking. I wasn't in trouble. Took me in the conference room and he gave me kind of a, of a pep talk on leadership. And I'm not sure I remember any of the content of what he said, but I knew that he loved me. I knew that he liked me. And there was a feeling that this man had my best interest in mind. Contrast that to when I'm 18 years old and I felt the call to go into the ministry. One of my uncles decided that was a horrible decision of my life. And he proceeded to take me on a walk in Louisville, Kentucky. I remember leaving his, his house, going on the sidewalk, puts his arm around me and told me that I should do something significant with my life, that going to the ministry would be a complete waste of everybody's time. <laughs> He's probably right. <laughs> um, I, I, I'll never forget that feeling because he did not have my best interests in mind. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Somebody talks to you about something, and you're not sure you even understand all the content, but you know that person loves you, and you know that person cares about you, and you know that person is trying to help you to do better or to be better. You you contrast that to somebody else who has a conversation with you, and you do understand the content. You're tracking with them, but you're not sure, in fact, you're pretty sure that person really does not have your best interest in mind. And it's a feeling, isn't it? Now imagine if every time we approached God's Word and every time we got a message from God that we realized that everything God said to us, He always had our best interest in mind. What would your life be like if every time you heard a Scripture or you were taught a scripture, or you thought about a scripture, if every time you knew that God always had your best interests in mind. Well, the Apostle Paul starts a church, and it's this church of Corinth, at Corinth, and we've been talking about this church now all summer long, got a couple more weeks, and he starts the church, and he spends 18 months there. But after 18 months, it's time for him to leave. And he goes and he plants some other churches. And while he leaves the church of Corinth and the city of Corinth, and you've got to remember this, great big city, but probably only about 4 or 5% of the city are now Christians. Huge city. But just a very few people decide that they're going to live for Christ. So after he leaves, the church just comes unraveled. When he leaves, the church just kind of literally falls apart. And they were taught the Christian narrative, and they were taught the scriptures, they were taught what God wanted them to do, but they decided within just a short period of time after he leaves to start being something else. And Paul gets word about this from Chloe's household. We don't know who Chloe is, but apparently she's a snitch, and Chloe told him about all this stuff that was going on, and Chloe said, here's what's really going on now that you've left, Paul. Um, They're all divided. Some follow Christ, some follow Paul, some follow Apollos, some follow you, and there's all kind of politics. It's called the super apostles. Now, I didn't grow up with politics in a church. Some of you did. I've heard your stories over the years. We're a non-denominational church. We don't have politics, and our elders' meetings are prayer meetings. Our staff meetings are worship services. So if you've had politics in church world, I don't really know what you're doing, 
I hear the stories, but, but in this culture, the church had become very political. Brothers and sisters were now suing each other. I'm not saying that you can't have lawsuits out in the world, but he is saying to sue a brother or sister, you're already kind of defeated. You should be able to, to work this out before you get there. The church is unraveled. Homosexuality, fornication, adultery. There's a case really of, of incest, and we're not going to talk about this, but in the first chapter, the very first letter, in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate, a man is sleeping with his father's wife. So in other words, a guy is sleeping with his stepmom. And you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and haven't have put him out of your fellowship, the man who has been doing this? So this church is unraveling. Now, there are a total of four letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. How many do we have? We have two. And they are very creatively named 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, right. So we don't have two of the four letters. And one of the letters that Paul writes to them is a scathing letter. He calls them out. And in calling them out, he's not sure what they're going to do. He's not sure if they're going to abandon Christianity and go back to their pagan ways, go back to idolatry, go back to temple worship, go back to everything. So we don't have letter number three. What would happen if we find letter number three? Can you imagine the church debate that would cause? Do we add another book to the Bible or do we just leave it out? That would be a great long discussion, wouldn't it? But we don't have it. And letter number three was a scathing letter calling them out that this is the Christian narrative, this is the Christian context, but you've chosen to live over here outside of this. So Paul now sends Titus, his sidekick. And Titus goes to the city of Corinth, and Titus basically finds out that the church says, you're right. We have not done well. Now, how many times does that happen in life? You know, you go home and tell your wife, you go home and tell your husband, you go home and tell your kids, and your kids go, oh, mom and dad, you're so right, you're so honor- honorable, you're so smart, you're the smartest people who ever lived. Oh, mom and dad, I worship you. I mean, how many times, how many, that, that doesn't happen, does it? And so the whole church, I know, I'm not on drugs and alcohol this morning. It was just a thought. It was just a wish, okay? And so you, you, you see this whole church now collectively repents. And Titus goes back to Paul and he's going, dude, you're not going to believe this. This is like amazing. You spoke the truth. You called them out. You had some hard discussions and they all collectively repented. And both Paul and Titus are high-fiving each other. And that's the context where we start our story today. You're going to be in this story in just a minute. You're not in the story yet, but I'm not going to leave you out, okay? (laughs) Hang on. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, after they get all this information, church goes AWOL, Titus goes there, Titus finds they've all repented. Titus now comes back to Paul. Paul and Titus are now having a kumbaya moment. So he writes now another letter. This is probably the fourth letter, which we call 2 Corinthians. It's probably the second letter. It's really the the fourth letter. We lost two of them. We don't know where two of them are. He says, make room for us in your hearts. I like that. Because I have your best interests in mind. I'm more like Jerry Simmons, your sixth grade basketball coach, than I am your uncle. 
make room for us. We always have your best interest in mind. And just imagine if every time you heard a scripture, every time you read God's word, you could approach it that way, that God always has my best interest in mind. We, we've wronged no one, Paul said. We've corrupted no one. We're not trying to manipulate the church or the church people. We have, have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I, I have said this before, that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or we would die for you. And they knew that. I think that's why they repented. I think that's why they collectively changed, is they knew that, that Paul had their best interests in mind. I've spoken to you with great frankness. You bet he did. That third letter he wrote them peeled their hair back an inch or two. He let them have it for not following the scriptures. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged in all our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest. So in other words, now we're going to go out and spread more churches. Now we're going to go plant more churches. We're harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, that's always a great word. But God, say that with me. But God, whenever you say, but God, you can turn the corner. You say, but God, you can have change in your life. But God, no matter what my circumstances are, there is hope. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort that you had given him. So in other words, you all received Titus. You all welcomed Titus. You knew my letter was honest. And you you gave Titus a great position. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. I want to talk about sorrow. And the very next verse talks about regret. And it applies to you, it applies to them, and it applies to your future. And how you learn to manage sorrow and regret will determine whether you have life and peace or whether you have a life that's just knotted up and complete turmoil. So let's talk about these two words, sorrow and regret. Now, they're not twins, but they're first cousins. They are first cousins. Sorrow is the emotion that we express when there's grief. And there's only two ways to express sorrow in just a minute. There's godly sorrow, and then there's worldly sorrow. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But all of us have sorrow. There are things that happen to us which are from regret. And because we have regret, we're going to experience them and express them somehow through sorrow. Now stay with me on this. Because here's regret. Regret are things that have happened to me that I've had nothing to do with. And regret are things that I've done And quite frankly, I'm 100% responsible for. So we can have regret because you were born into a family that maybe your mother was an alcoholic. Or you can have regret that maybe you were born into a family where the dad couldn't handle things and he lost the farm. Or you can have regret that you're at Highway US 19 and you're at a stoplight and you get rear-ended and you have back pain and back problems for the rest of your life. You were just at the wrong place at the wrong time. Everybody in the room has some regret that's caused by other people, other circumstances, and other situations. But most of our regret, we've caused. Most of our regret, yes, I did it. 
Yes, I said it. Yep, I did it again and again and again. Yep, most of our regret is a result of the things that we have personally said are done. Now, what do you do with that regret? Well, there's only two ways. There's only two responses to your regret that are expressed in sorrow. One leads to sleepless nights, heart attacks, ulcers, high blood pressure, and all kind of pain in your life that you're trying to somehow deal with. The other one leads to life and peace. And which, do you, which one do you want? There's only two. There's only two ways. One leads to, and one leads to life and peace. Now, I know which one you want. That's not the question. The hard part is, how do I get to this life and peace? Um, I love this interview one night. Brown University hosted a a discussion with Bill Gates and with Warren Buffett. And somebody asked Warren Buffett at Brown University, said, Mr. Buffett, um, what do you do during the day that keeps you up at night? And Warren kind of went, well, young man, I try to do nothing during the day that keeps me up at night. It was a great answer. The crowd cheered. Everybody clapped. And it sounds really good. Only it's not true. Everybody does things during the day that keeps them up at night. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody has regret. Everybody has said something, done something, betrayed somebody, lied, stole, cheated. Been... Everybody in the room who's probably 12 years of age and older, I don't know why 12, just sounds like a good number. If you're 11, you can be a part of this too, okay? We'll, we'll include you. We all have regret. Now, if we're going to carry that regret for the rest of our life, we're going to have sleepless nights, heart attacks, high blood pressure, and ulcers. But we don't have to carry it. We can still have life and peace no matter what aunt so-and-so and and uncle so-and-so and grandma and grandpa did to us. And I can still have life and peace no matter how many bad choices I made during the course of my life. That's now where you come into this story. Here's what he says to us. He says in verse 8, Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, and it was a hard letter. I wish we had it. Again, it's lost. It's gone. I don't regret it, though I did regret it, because he was rattled. He doesn't know if the church is going to implode, unravel, or get it together. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow, it led you somewhere. Now, worldly sorrow will lead you somewhere, and godly sorrow will lead you somewhere. Be clear on this. Worldly sorrow will lead you somewhere. You will mask it. You will cover it up. And if you cover it up and you never fess it up, you will stay messed up. Gosh, that all kind of rhymed, didn't it? I didn't even write that down. I'm not sure I could say it again, but you get the point, don't you? And so what happens then when we, when we cover it up? We don't get cleaned up, and we stay messed up. And so some of you are medicating yourself, or some of you are doing all kinds of inappropriate things, or some of you are doing some things that appear to be appropriate, but really it's just a cover-up because of your sorrow and your regret. 
But there is a godly sorrow that lays it down to the foot of the cross. There is a godly sorrow that allows you to go forward with victory no matter how many things you've said or done in your past. Here's what he's saying. For you became sorrowful as God intended. Now, there is there's an intention of God. There is sorrow that God wants you to have. There is a godly sorrow. There is a worldly sorrow that won't help you at all. But a godly sorrow will lead you to life and peace. For you became sorrowful as God intended. And so we were not harmed in any way by us. I've got your best interests in mind. i got your back. I always have your best interests in mind. That's who I am. I am God Almighty and the Apostle Paul through the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the whole point. If you've been asleep, wake up. If your neighbor's asleep, just give them a good jab right now in the ribs, and maybe they'll scream and shout hallelujah and think the service is over and stand up. I don't know. But, but, but just wake up right here because this is the key verse to everything we're trying to say. See, godly sorrow brings repentance. It brings a change of direction, a change of behavior, a change of thought. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. He's not talking about being saved like going to heaven. He's talking about your earthly salvation, having a right relationship with God. Now, if you're not a Christian, that's a whole different story where you start with repentance and giving your life to Christ. This is written to the church. These are church people. These are, these are us. It's we. These are not heathens and pagans outside the narrative of the Christian community. This is us. And see, it leaves no regret. That's what's so cool. Why? Because I gave this to Jesus. I gave him my immorality. I gave him my greed. I gave him my betrayal. I gave him my lawsuit that I shouldn't have done. I gave him my... You just fill in the blanks with a hundred different things. Godly sorrow is different than worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is, I got caught. So I'm a young pastor in Memphis. I'm still very young, but I was a younger pastor in Memphis. <laughs> and um, this guy calls me up, and, and riverboat gambling just got started in Biloxi, Mississippi. And he's, it's just about an hour and a half away from Memphis. And so he calls me up on the phone. He's choking, choking the sobs and the tears. I just took $1,200 out of my wife's savings account. And I went into Biloxi and I riverboat gambled and I gambled it all away. What am I going to do? I said, well, you're going to tell your wife. I can't tell my wife. She'll kill me. Well, maybe you should have thought of that before you took the $1,200. That's just a thought, you know. And, and, and I, I'm trying to walk the guy through this, and I don't get it. I don't get the fact that he's sorry that he got caught. He's not sorry for his sins. Another woman in the church, and she'd been caught doing pornography, a woman. And apparently she'd had a pornography issue for about 10 years, and the husband caught her. They come into my office. She's coughing and choking back the tears. And at this point, I'm starting to get it. She's not really sorry that she has sinned against her heavenly father. She's just sorry that she what? She, she got caught. And so it's about that point in my life, I'm about 29 or 30 years of age, and I never really thought about this before. 
And I came across this verse. And I thought, how liberating this is. Because really, all sin is against God. All sin is ultimately against my heavenly Father. And once I began to understand, I know I'm 30 years old and I'm a preacher and I should have been way ahead of this, but I wasn't. And I realized that most of us are just kind of like sin management. If I can just manage my sin and just keep people from seeing my sin, and yet God is saying to, to all of us, why don't you get rid of it? Why don't you lay it down? Why don't you put it at the feet of the cross? Godly sorrow leads you somewhere. Now, sorrow is a feeling. This is an action. Repentance is an action. And right now, some of you in the room are going, I'd really like to not be knotted up the rest of my I'm all knotted up from some of the sorrow and the regret that I have. And others of you in the room are probably just hoping the sermon will be over really quickly so you can go on with your life. Okay? But you won't leave changed. You won't leave any different. You really won't be any better. And my goal as your pastor, I want to be Jerry Simmons. I have your best interests in mind this morning. Worldly sorrow, it just brings death. It doesn't mean you're going to die, but it means slowly you're going to die. Slowly it's going to eat you up. Slowly it's going to knot you up and you will stay knotted up. And you don't have to because there's godly sorrow that will actually lead you to repentance, which leads you to salvation, which is life. So let's, let's put some blanks in here. If you've got your app and you want to fill some blanks in, let's, let's do some of this. So what, what are we saying? Worldly sorrow stops with remorse. Ah, I got caught. Ah, I got exposed. It recognizes regret. We're, everybody, all sorrow recognizes regret. I wish this hadn't happened. I wish she wouldn't have. I wish I wouldn't have. There is sorrow for wrongdoing, but in worldly sorrow, God's left out of the equation. We don't connect the dots that really sin is against our Heavenly Father, and really our Heavenly Father can remove our remorse and we can move on to life and to peace. It leads to self-pity, self-disgust, resentment, and bitterness. This is where people live who have worldly sorrow. I got caught, poor pitiful me. Self-pity, self-disgust. How do we know this? Listen to, their, listen to their, how they talk. And if you're asking yourself, if you're in this category, what do you say to yourself? What's your self-talk? It leads to self-pity, self-disgust, resentment, and to bitterness. But the response of godly sorrow is repentance. I'm going to lay it down. I think this is the opportunity we have every time we come to communion. In communion every Sunday, and I love the fact that we have weekly communion. I didn't quite get that when I was in my, you know, 20s or whatever, but I, I now understand my sins. I love this part about communion. And every time during communion, I have an opportunity to say, you know what? I regret this. I wish I hadn't said this this week. I wish I hadn't have done this this week. I wish, I wish this week, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay it down at the foot of the cross, and I'm going to go forward with, with power and with passion. Godly sorrow recognizes sin is ultimately against God. I mean, if you sin against me in some way, I don't know how you do it. I don't, anyway, whatever you do, there's a lot of ways that you could do it. I'm not going to mention them. I'm not going to give you any ideas, Okay. <laughs> But ultimately, it, it, it's against God. If I sin against you, ultimately, yes, it hurts you, but ultimately, I'm sinning against my heavenly Father. It is a sorrow which has come to see the wrongness of something I did. Now, can you imagine if 
just the church takes ownership for our behavior and for our speech. And every time we come to communion or whenever you get with your father, you say, Lord, I want to I give you this. I, I didn't handle this right. I, I didn't make a good decision there. I've not made a good decision here now for quite some time. I need your strength and your help. It leads to repentance, which leads to restoration. That's what you want, which is life and peace. It leads to repentance, which leads to restoration, and it brings life and peace. There's only two ways to deal with your sorrow. One leads to knotted up, sleepless nights, high blood pressure, heart attacks. The other one leads to life and peace. That's as far as I can help you. At this point, you have to make a choice. I'm going to lay it down. I'm going to come clean. I'm going to fess up. I'm going to give it to Jesus. Or I'm going to try to just have sin management and just try to pretend that I'm a little better than I, than I am. Well, let's look at verse 11. So they repented. They got it together. Titus got it, has good news. And here's the response. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? This is what it does in you. What earnestness, in other words, I care about the things of God. What eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern. What readiness to see justice done. At every point, you've proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. And when you repent, you're able to see the things of God and see the Christian context and see your role in solving some of those world problems. So even though I wrote to you, that's letter number three, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong or on account of the injured party. The one who did the wrong is the story I started with, with the incest, somebody sleeping with your stepmother. I didn't write you just about that. There's a whole bunch of other issues going on in the church. But rather that before God, you could see yourselves how devoted to us you are. I wasn't just trying to correct something. I'm trying to help you to see that you're really all in. You love God, and you love the church, is what he's saying. By all this, we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. All right, so let's come down to you and to some application. Will I sit here and be regretful, or will I be diligent? In other words, will I just sit here and just, gosh, I wish I had enough. I wish nobody would know. I wish I hadn't made some of these mistakes. Or will I be diligent in every time when I, I'm just using communion as an example, I come clean and I confess my sins before my Heavenly Father. Will I leave today with guilt or will I lay my guilt at the foot of the cross? Nobody has to leave today with any guilt. Everybody can lay whatever stuff is going on inside of you at the foot of the cross. Will I remain apathetic about my spiritual condition or will I get upset? I'm done. I'm done carrying this. I'm done holding on to this responsibility. I am done with this. This is going to get laid down, buried forever, and it's going to be removed as far as the east is from the west, and I'm I'm done with it. I'm done with this. I'm going to lay it down. I'm going to be bold and strong and courageous. Will I just sit here, or will I have a vehement desire to do what is right? Will I be indicted over my sins, or will I be vindicated by the power of God's amazing Holy Spirit? 
Those are our choices today. Big difference between Judas and between Peter, right? Absolutely big difference. Both of them had remorse. Both of them had sorrow. But what Judas did, he was sorry that he'd made these mistakes. He was sorry that he got caught. He was sorry that he got caught up in something. He was very, very disappointed in himself and probably in Jesus. And he went out and he hanged himself. But you contrast that to, Paul, to, to uh, Peter, rather. And Peter is now so distraught, he was told he was going to, you know, deny Christ three times. He said, there's no way I'm going to do that. Even if I have to die with you. I, and before the rooster crowed twice, he denied Christ three times. And so Peter is so upset. But now, Jesus comes to him. Simon, son of John, do you love me? I'm sorry, Peter, son, do, you, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus told him three times, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed my sheep. You see, the difference is this. One man was just filled with worldly sorrow, but another man was filled with godly sorrow. And the godly sorrow led him to repentance. So I want to give you a chance this morning. And by the way, look at what happened to the rest of Peter's life. Nobody brought this back up again. Nobody kept reminding him of all of his mistakes. Peter goes on on the day of Pentecost, and he preaches the most amazing sermon, and thousands of people became Christians that day. Peter goes on and writes some letters that we have today, some of the most powerful, potent scriptures in all the New Testament. You see, that's your future. You don't want Judas's future. You want Peter's future. And so we're going to take communion right now. They're going to pass it out for us right now. They're going to just hold the loaf and the cup. Just hold on to it. We're going to sing a song. And while you're holding it and you're singing this morning, I want to ask you, what do you need to lay down? What, what is it in your past or your present that needs to be laid at the foot of the cross? I, I give this to you, Jesus. I, I lay this at your feet, and during this time of communion, I'm going to repent. I'm going to change how I think. I'm going to change my direction, and I'm going to give you my heart, my will, my emotions, my soul, and come to my spirit and just transform me forever and forever. So during this time of communion, I wouldn't cover it up. You'll stay messed up. But I would, I'd fess it up. And you'll leave today with life and with peace.